0: AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to at and Track for July 15th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures to cyber threats. Today, I'm joined by Matt Kaiser, and Matt, how are you doing
0: this week? Pretty good. Uh, being pulled in all sorts of different directions, but that's pretty usual for me.
1: Yeah, well, that's the security lifestyle, right? <laughs> it's always something new, and when you least expect it. Uh, also joined here by uh, John Hogeboom, and how about you, John? Same thing, just keeping my head above water. Keeping your head yeah. above water. Trying. So we're all keeping busy, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty clear sign. And uh, Jim Clausing online here. Welcome, Jim. Thanks,
2: Brian. Yeah, I'm working on some enhancements for one of our analysis environments, but uh, keeping busy.
1: Okay, very good. And I'm Brian Rexroad and uh, happy to have you with us today. Uh, first thing we're going to talk about here today is, um, I guess, uh, researchers have been uh, taking a look at uh, password wallets. And, uh, Jim, what can you tell us about it?
2: Yeah, there's uh, been a, a lot of attention uh, to a, a paper that's going to be presented next month at a security conference by um, a couple of researchers at UC Berkeley. I think it's Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um and they they looked at four uh, popular password managers and s- found some issues with them. And uh, a, a lot of the stories have been have been making this out to you know, oh panic, you know the sky is falling, mm-hmm. password managers are no good. And that's not really what I take away from from reading the paper. But uh, they looked at um, four of these password managers, web-based password managers Um, only one of them was one that I was really familiar with and that Mm -hmm. was LastPass Mm -hmm. Um, that actually happens to be one I use for my personal stuff at home Um, but they also looked at RoboForm, Mm -hmm. MyOneLogin, PasswordBox, NeedMyPassword and basically what they found is Uh, that there were a couple of issues um, one with uh, one of the big ones that they were that a lot of these stories are highlighting is with the bookmarklet uh, feature of LastPass which um, basically allows you to uh, have LastPass automatically log you in to websites Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, specifically in uh, in web browsers that you can't integrate it in other in another way, um, and you know, yeah, that that's an issue. It was fixed uh, almost immediately after they uh, were informed. The folks at LastPass were informed of the vulnerability in 2013, so it hasn't been a problem since September of last year. Um, another one of their uh, vulnerabilities that they found, and they seem to spend a lot of time talking about LastPass, mm-hmm. since that seems to me to be the most popular of the ones they looked at. The other one was a, a cross-site request forgery issue, and this one could actually be uh, kind of a big deal if you use LastPass's one-time password function. Um, basically, they this would it make it possible to steal um, your encrypted password vault, and then they could try to hack that offline. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are ways to protect yourself against some of these things. Um, four of the five uh, folks fixed the vulnerabilities uh, immediately after they heard about them. The other one, the researchers hadn't heard back from. Um, it's not going to get me to stop using uh, these because I just have too many passwords to try to keep in my mind, and right. this allows me a, a, a software product that I can use to generate secure, you know, strong passwords and keep them encrypted. I turn on the two-factor authentication to even get into my password vault, so that mm-hmm. you know is an additional level of security. Uh, But one of the things that this really brings up is this is another piece of software. Software is going to have bugs. It is not, you know, if you integrate it in with other things, you know, if you use it directly in your browser, you know, then potentially there are ways going through the browser to get at it. You know, one of the nice things about the, the two password vaults that I use, though, is they're separate applications. The way I use them, they're separate applications, and I either cut and paste, uh, or you know, have it up on my mobile device, my phone, mm-hmm. and I, you know, with my eyeballs copy, it, you know, read it and type it in on the keyboard. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I still think password vaults are, are a good thing, and these, and it really didn't talk about, um, and I don't know whether they tried to attack any of the other real popular ones like KeePass and 1Password and and those. Um, So there are still good options out there. I I definitely wouldn't use these stories to scare me off from using password managers. Just remember, they are themselves pieces of software. They could potentially have... Vulnerabilities and bugs, just like any other piece of software.
1: Yeah, I think you. All your points are very good, Jim. The uh, I think, as a practical matter, so th- let's dig into this just a little bit more here. Uh, first of all, can you help us uh, distinguish a little bit about? You used the term password vault, and uh, in this case, we're we're talking about web-based password managers, and then I guess there are probably some other options here that uh, that that are uh, worth considering. For example, for uh, federated. Uh, access control mechanisms. Can you help us uh, distinguish between the three a little bit?
2: The you you have um, you know a federated access. You've got kind of a single sign-on thing where you have the control is managed um, you know at some other party, and you authenticate to this other party, and they pass either the credentials back to you to pass on, or they talk directly to the other other system these web-based password managers that they're about in this particular paper um, are, are basically password managers where they keep your passwords encrypted out on some website so that you can access them from you know from multiple devices from you know from your phone from okay. your laptop from your desktop whatever um, what was the third one you were asking about?
1: <laughs> I guess you could, you mentioned password vault. I tend to equate that with something that perhaps you're you're using locally, but perhaps you have a different uh, uh, definition for it. But I think the notion of making the distinction between the three,
3: like a local application,
2: right? So, so yeah, it, password vault yeah, could be something that's only kept on you know one device, um, kept locally, not. Uh, not accessible from, you know, from multiple machines. Right, and so
1: I think the significance there is each one of those are really sort of a distinct solution, all sort of trying to achieve the same purpose, but uh, how they go about is a little different and to the extent that you might have to do some manual operations to be able to, uh, so for example, federated, you're only going to be able to work with, uh, organizations that have federated with that. So you, if you have a Google Plus password, for example, it's going to only work with organizations that have federated with Google, whereas this password, the web-based managers, as you mentioned earlier, give you the opportunity to synchronize between different devices. And uh, But it is a web-based solution, and uh, as you pointed out, it would have its own set of potential flaws associated with it. Whereas when I think of a password vault as something a little bit local, you're probably going to have to go through some additional manual steps to use it. And uh, each of them have trade-offs. And I think you you made a very good point. Um, You know, just philosophically speaking, and this is philosophical, sort of the idealistic sense, adding software to any solution cannot inherently make it more secure. It certainly can make it more convenient. It can make it less prone to errors. It can give you more insight into things that you perhaps wouldn't otherwise know about. But underlying inside there, adding software introduces bugs. And uh, fundamentally, there are going to be flaws associated with that, uh, with those solutions. But you know, it's a matter of, uh, I guess, balancing between sort of the philosophical security solution versus a uh, more practical that might actually be helpful and better from a security standpoint. First of all, you know, the fact that these researchers are looking at this, identifying some flaws, helping to uh, isolate those and fix it—that's uh, a good thing. It helps to reduce the number of flaws that are there, and. Uh, to the extent that we can improve the quality of software and the development of tools like this, that certainly will be helpful going forward. So speaking of quality of software, um, I guess there's, a, there's an advertisement out that suggests some higher quality malware.
0: Sure, I, I hesitate to call any malware anything but bad software in the first place. Um, but yeah, there was an article, uh, Trusteer mentioned that they saw a posting on an underground forum, they didn't say which or by who, uh, stating that there's a new malware family being sold called Kronos, mm-hmm. and if those of you who are studied, uh, students of um, Greek mythology will know that Kronos is the father of Zeus, and there's a little mm-hmm. joke in there somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but this is another of your, your banking Trojan type malware. It has a bunch of advanced features, mm-hmm. apparently, and I'll get back to that. Uh, sandbox, bypass, AV bypass, encrypted command and control. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be fairly sophisticated according to the, ar- the um, advertisement, comes with a $7,000 price tag, Um, $1,000 to do a sort of a test run. They set up a server and you play with it for a little while, you know, get your feet wet sort Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, But that's all we know so far. We have this original um, advertisement in Russian with Mm -hmm. an English translation. And there's been lots of speculation on the web as to, wow, is this a Zeus killer? Is this the next new wave? And To me, it feels more like hype, honestly, Mm. because no one, as far as I know, no one in the 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 good guy community has seen this yet. Right. So as far as we know, it doesn't exist.
3: Although I've heard somebody I'm not sure who it was said they took a look at the uh, the code oh. and it has a lot of um, a lot of f- functions and source code that resembles Carburp. Mm. So it oh. might be an offshoot of the Carburp family. So
0: is this not the um, same as as Zburp? Because I've heard of Zburp, which is a Zeus Carburp. Hybrid that came out. of I some don't point. know
3: if yeah, I'm not sure if it's a hybrid or. But they said there were some some functions in there that looked very Carverp like. Okay, um, interesting. But uh, you know, w- you know, like you said, myself, I haven't actually seen a sample of this yet. I'd like to mm-hmm. to kind of get a better feel for what it looks like and how it behaves, especially from a network standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, uh, up until now, we're not really sure, other than some hearsay and, right. and people right. advertising in the underground.
1: Well, I think just the conversation you just had here is a very, uh, very um, valuable one in the sense that, uh, you know, one of the things we've been saying is that there's very little revolution in malicious activity. And I think this is a pr- pretty good example here where even this new advertised thing is suggesting, you know, it's looking like it's perhaps a derivative and perhaps improvements or subtle maybe maybe more aggressive in some cases, but improvements on something that already exists. Now, obviously we're, we're speculating a little bit here, but obviously uh, it's, uh, it's not going to be completely completely different. General- it's rare
3: that there's revolutionary change in malware. And sometimes when we have seen that, that's been really special like APT type things, mm-hmm. uh, like Flame and things like that, where you know, it was somebody off on the side working independently that came up with something completely new versus a lot of this crimeware seems to be very iterative, uh, mm-hmm. for the most part.
0: Okay. So. so, Matt, what else have
1: you been hearing about this?
0: Oh, that's basically everything. Um, ex- okay. The, the $7,000 price tag I originally thought was fairly high, but mm-hmm. apparently, um, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, there was another family that recently sold somewhere in the 10000 to 15000 That's US dollars mm-hmm. range. So it's not unreasonable, but it is um, a bit high, in my opinion, for a family of malware that is, as far as I can tell, untested, and again, right. I, we've got sort of competing stories here as to what it actually truly is. Mm-hmm. But whatever its lineage is, I think, is the more important part. You know, is it good code? Is it, you know, if it is originally Zeus or, or Carburp, maybe that speaks mm-hmm. to the quality of the code. But also, whoever's advertising it on the other ground, if they have their own reputation to go along with it and say, hey, I've right. been here for X number of years. You know who I am and the quality of my product, that also allows them to sell at that rate.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the challenges that is if you're coming out with a new brand name in effect, mm-hmm. do you really have a market? That's, do you have a really brand recognition or that? And in this kind of community, there needs to be a certain amount of trust associated with it, because part of the objective here is to be able to uh, run this in, in an environment, not be detected, to be able to be successful doing things in, a, in some fairly complex ways. So. Uh, Developing some trust here is important. I mean, obviously, these people are going to be developing or dependent on that trust to help hide from their criminal activities, right? To, to so. hide from
0: law enforcement, certainly.
1: Right. So that's uh, an aspect of this, that it's uh, it's probably not enough just to have a good product. You have to have a reputation and uh, perhaps a stake in the game to some, to some extent. Certainly. Right. All right. Well, it's uh, certainly good information to know about, hopefully in advance of actually having to experience this problem and we hope that uh, it doesn't turn into, into fruition in the, long, in the long run here. So uh, next item here, I guess uh, we were talking about this earlier. I, I kind of equated this to going into a restaurant and then using somebody else's used napkin or something along those lines. But right, right.
3: So um, Brian Krebs, uh, yeah, he put an article out recently Um, And actually, it's kind of in response to um, uh, the NKIC, which is the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, Mm -hmm. as well as the, um, uh, I believe it was the Secret Service. Secret Service, uh, yeah. uh, Released a bulletin saying that they've uh, recently performed some arrests in Northern Texas uh, around uh, some actors who had been putting uh, keylogger software on hotel computers. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you go to these hotels, sometimes they have these courtesy computers in some kind of business center in the hotel. And um, they've, you know, I guess they rounded up a ring of guys or whoever, gals, yeah, possibly to, involved in putting, um, you know, uh, key logging software on there, using mm-hmm. that to harvest login IDs and passwords and other types of things, and then uh, using that to engage in criminal activity. They also noted that in some cases, these actors, and I, this is probably how they tracked them down they uh, had used uh, credit cards fraudulently to register hotel rooms so they mm-hmm. could get access to the network and whatnot um, without, you know, raising suspicion maybe as as readily as just walking in cold into mm-hmm. the business center there. Um, so, you know, I think we all know, uh, for the most part, if you're watching this program, most people are pretty security savvy that, You know, you would be very suspicious or you should be very wary about using any type of machine that you don't have physical access Mm -hmm. or control of uh, at all times. Uh, Even when I use other people's machines that I know, I'm a little suspicious, but, you know, maybe we're a little bit more paranoid than most people. Um, The other thing is, is this is not like the only type of threat that we've seen you know in the past there's been hardware key loggers that people have used there's a case a few years ago mm-hmm. um at a library another you know center where there's public computers where they had put the hardware key loggers in in between the keyboard and the usb right, right. um which is another method that's very hard to detect uh unless you're you know visually checking the machines when you got to use them and uh we've also heard stories about even in hotels where there's those rogue dhcp mm-hmm. a little bit different but they can kind of do man-in-the-middle type of injection on your, you know, your uh, uh, your network connectivity using right. the hotel network. Right. Anyway, one of the things I thought was interesting besides the whole article in general and one of these things you want to be aware of and uh, be conscientious of when you're at a hotel, uh, and I would recommend, you know, don't use a hotel uh, computer. Use your right. own if you can at all possible. Uh, and if you do have to use one, try to minimize your uh the ability for somebody to leverage something there yeah, so if you, have, it, right. you know if you have a file or an email you want to look at maybe send it to one of those temporary throwaway email services from your mm-hmm. phone and then bring it up on the hotel computer so that's the only thing that you'd be able to get is that one email at this temporary email and then print it or what you know if that's what you need to do mm-hmm. like a uh, you know maybe your uh, your flight or something Boarding passes, right, right? Those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but uh, Brian Krebs also referenced one of the uh, uh, one of these articles from Microsoft, which I thought was interesting because I hadn't seen this before. But they had posted probably a while back their ten immutable laws of security, which I thought was interesting. And uh, he referenced that number three is the one we're kind of talking about here. Uh, we have it up on the screen. If a bad guy has unrestricted physical access to your computer, it's not your computer anymore. So basically saying, you know, uh, don't trust a machine that you don't have physical access to uh, at all times, because that's one of the main tenants of, if you can physically access a machine, it's basically game over. Mm -hmm. There's really no way to protect a device if somebody has physical access to it, because there's so many different ways to take control of that device, um, you know, without just having to type on a keyboard. You could replace hard drives, you could copy, you could do all kinds of things if you have physical access.
1: Well, it is conceivably possible and particularly under certain circumstances. You know, like, you know, take a look at a bank or, you know, some file cabinets are designed to protect against physical access, Mm -hmm. but there's a time associated with that. And there are circumstances associated with that. And the intent in most cases where you're trying to protect things from physical intrusion, the intent is to just buy some time so that the authorities can get there, so that they can be detected, or at least when you come back, you realize that it's been physically modified. I have not seen very many computers that have any sort of physical tamper protection. So right. I'm, tr- I'm trying to reinforce your point here and that uh, absolutely if, uh, if somebody has physical access to your com- computer.
3: And even things that do, like an ATM, you know, uh, we've right. seen lots of cases where skimmers can be added right onto it because they have mm-hmm. physical access to the device. Yeah. Uh, There's another story we covered a few weeks ago when Stan was here. Uh, where some Russian guys had figured out how to s- inject a actual p- printed circuit board mm-hmm. into the card reader and take control of the ATM. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if you have physical access, uh, there's a lot of things that you know can be done, especially if you understand how the machine works, absolutely um, at yeah. a very detailed level. That's
0: true. It's okay. interesting. There's a lot of the, the Internet of Things hacks that are coming out now. You know, a lot of people are assuming it's the vulnerabilities are inherent because they're attached to the network. Mm-hmm. But actually, a lot of the really interesting research is people who are buying these things, taking them home, put them on the workbench, you know, ripping information out of the the, the hard coded chips and finding mm-hmm. encryption keys, and then going back and doing it over the network with even more knowledge. Right. It's at that point, it becomes a real like everything co- attached to the sorry everything connected to the internet is vulnerable, but only because the the work has been done against the physical device prior.
1: Yeah, absolutely true. Right. Yeah. Good point. Well, I guess uh, what we'll do here is we'll uh, give make it a homework assignment for folks to take a closer look at some of these other immutable yeah. laws. Uh, certainly, there are there are ten of them here. We're showing uh, uh, showing the uh, giving you access to the ten, and uh, it's right off the Microsoft website. So, uh, very good things to keep in mind. And I guess one of the things I, I thought would be worth pointing out, you said, don't use a computer that uh, has been in someone else's control or that you haven't had control of from a physical standpoint, I think this will be a good, basically an awareness topic to include as a part of any corporate security program. That is to make sure that uh, it's not just the security savvy folks, but it's the folks in general realize that when they go to another computer, uh, they are taking some risks and perhaps some advice around those lines. Uh, first of all, USB devices shouldn't be plugged into computers that you're not familiar with, unless you plan on throwing it away. Right. Um, a CD is much better, particularly if it's a non—you know—it's a one-time write CD. You can put some data on there. Now, keep in mind what data is going on there. You're basically giving away, but uh, it's a—at it, least you don't have the opportunity for it to get rewritten and then come back and infect your own computer. So things can spread through these computers as well as something that folks will need to be paying attention to.
0: I would pay good money to have a a nice high capacity drive with a a physical write switch. I have not seen those in so long. (laughs) I have to go back to like my 256 megabyte old key to do
1: that. Yeah, the floppies used to always always have this. Oh yeah, that's right. They do. Yeah, they got rid of those, right? right?
3: We used to have Write Protect. Notches uh, geez, and you put a little I piece of tape over
1: on The tape would always fall off and then you end up, oops, no, that's not, not so good.
3: Yeah, right. the USB thumb drives I've seen, they have, you know, right protection ones, but like you said, they're very hard to find. Yeah.
1: Now, these uh, 10 immutable laws are here just in bullet form, but if you go to the Microsoft website, there's a little bit of explanation around all those. And certainly, if you have any questions or comments, or you want to debate this a little bit further, uh, feel free to contact us. We uh, certainly welcome your input. Remember, it's uh, threattrack at .at list.at.com to contact us
0: through email. We could probably make one, maybe two or three shows about debating these topics amongst us, honestly. And perhaps we will. We we could. (laughs) Okay, so uh, next
1: item here, um, I guess the, uh, there's a new list, uh, there are new forms of blacklists coming out in different, uh, different ways, and uh, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about this new
0: one that's come out? Sure, so abuse.ch uh, has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, they're most well known for the, the Zeus tracker list, which th- wh- where they track the different locations of known Zeus command and control. It's been very helpful to us, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, they've just released a new blacklist, they're calling the SSLBL, SSL blacklist, and what they're doing is they are publishing the SSL certificate information for known malware command and control. Uh, so if you have the ability to detect SSL certificates as they pass across the wire, mm-hmm. you can say you know, almost without a doubt that these certificates are malicious, therefore the traffic they're protecting is malicious, and you can ban them from your network. Mm-hmm. Um, the list is sort of set up, it's, it's biased towards using Suricata, which is uh, like Snort. It might actually be a, a fork of Snort at some it, point. Yeah,
3: I, I don't recall, but you're right. It mm. has maybe some basis in that originally. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So it's, it's meant to be used with an IDS that has the ability to look for SSL certificate information. Okay. Um, they're actually publishing the SHA-1 hashes of those, as, long, as well as, as the, um, a couple bits of metadata that you would look for, like right, the like name the of the subject, company. Subject, common name. Exactly. like that inside the certificate. Uh, So the list is available online. They've also got a secondary list, if you don't have that capability, to use. um, They're actually tracking the IP addresses that they've associated with those same certificates, Mm -hmm. Um, which is okay if that's all you can really use in your environment. personally would feel better if, if, you know, I would recommend that you use the actual signatures because those command and control points are going to change over time. Those IPs might get recycled, they might right. get cleaned up. But if you're using those actual SSL certs, that's almost, you know, 100% certain that what you're looking at is malicious if you find well, it. Well,
1: presumably in this case, the private key holder of those certificates is the bad guy,
0: mm. right? Presumably, and yes. so
1: nobody else theoretically should have it. And so having presented that certificate... And a uh, in an SSL session it would be a pretty strong indicator that you're talking to a bad guy. Right.
0: right. So okay. they're actually collecting for uh, some variants of Zeus, Kins, Shylock, and I want to say uh, Vautrak is the other one. Okay. And I expect personally the list to expand in different families as they continue this. It's been out for less than like 24 hours at this point. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm sure they'll work on it. Okay.
3: And to your point of IPs changing a lot, I did check probably like the most recent 20 none of them are still up so because I was trying to go grab the certificates you know mm-hmm. to maybe try to figure out if I could do something with our own detection stuff uh, to look for the presence of these certificates you know other than the SHA-1 sums. So a lot of them
1: have present. been taken down but they may have migrated to different right. servers. They may have migrated someplace else places.
3: Um, and the thing to keep in mind, the common name or whatever the domain name is that's listed in the certificate, even it, there might not even be one in many of them, doesn't necessarily indicate the domain that they're using to resolve to to go get to that mm-hmm. you know, command and control. So um, uh, it appears that the ones that are on the list, as far as I was able to term, determine are not alive anymore, not up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they probably moved someplace else, but I'm not quite sure where they've moved to. Okay. But irrespective, they could still reuse those certificates anywhere because it's mm-hmm. not necessarily tied to a specific IP
0: address or anything. Well, that's the danger of, of, of a public blacklist like that. Is as soon as it becomes public, it becomes known to the attackers as well. Mm-hmm. So if they can set something up that says, "Okay, well this certificate's no longer any good to us. This one isn't. This one isn't either," they can cycle through. So right. it's going to be a cat and mouse game. But it's good to at least have these, you know, for the good guys. Mm-hmm. We're going
1: to set you up with a couple of questions here. First of all, why not just revoke the certificates?
3: Well, they're not through like, a real certificate authority, so you right. can't, you know, go to them and get a certificate revocation you know, list for these. They're self-signed certificates. That's another thing also that you could be looking for in the um, in the certificate chain is if you have a means to do this there aren't many appliances that i know of that can do this but maybe some proxies and whatnot can look for when the certificate comes back there'll be some kind of certificate signing chain in that certificate and you can mm-hmm. see well this is a self-signed one versus one that's signed by verisign or someone that's trusted uh, which might be a tip off that hey you it know, th- doesn't necessarily mean that that's a rogue site necessarily when you see ssl certificate that's self-signed but it's one of those indicators where all of these, as far as I'm able, I was able to determine, are self-signed. I don't think right. any of them were, um, you know, signed by an, uh, an official SSL, you know, signer.
1: Well, we've certainly seen cases where they were signed by a valid authority, but they were expired and perhaps stolen right. in some cases seen, like that. So there are other scenarios that. that could exist. I think there's a. I think this is perhaps just in its infancy, and it's or hopefully there. The, the intent is to expand this to other types of. Uh, certificates used in malicious circumstances uh going forward so the next question is how the heck can you see this if ssl is encrypted i know you're you're thinking why is brian asking these goofy questions (laughs) well you
3: can i mean so when you first do the ssl exchange um the first thing that the server is going to send back to you is the public part of the certificate so that is actually clear text it doesn't look clear text on the wire but certain components of it will be clear text. Mm -hmm. And that's what your browser actually ingests and says, okay, here's my certificate, this is how I'm gonna go encrypt this traffic to the the endpoint. Then he uses the private part of the key to decrypt. And then you go back and forth that way. Um, So the very first part of that session setup of your SSL session that is transferred in the clear, if you have an appliance that can, you know, recognize that that's happening and maybe save off that certificate, or do some analysis of it you'd be able to tell okay this is one of the ones that's on the list here it's got the mm-hmm. same SHA one sum or maybe the certain components like the common name or the the uh, uh subject or there's a couple other fields in there uh, that are in this certificate or you know match whatever they're in there although there's a lot of uh in the list there that are using the defaults yep. so mm-hmm. when you go to use OpenSSL to create your own certificate they give you that internet widgets, PTY, something, something, and people just hit return, 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 and there's a bunch of certificates like that right. on the list. So you really need to look at that SHA-1 sum, which would be unique. That would you know, very accurately specify that this is the certificate that they're talking about that you're also seeing.
1: Okay. So uh, last question here, again, another setup here. Why doesn't the prizer just tell me that I've got a bad certificate, it's self-signed? You know, and usually I get that pop-up that says, Go ahead, Matt, it's I'll yours. I'll
0: take this John's been taking all the fun ones. Uh, because this isn't a browser. This is right. malware communicating back and forth. There's right. no indication to the user that this malware is even installed on the machine. So your browser will not have any way to warn you. Right. It's really between the malware and its home. That. The whole so that's
1: happening. why it's important that we get into the network in this case. We can't depend on the end computer because it's got some malware installed and this is actually one mechanism to try to identify that you've got malware on your environment it, the fact that that certificate's being, uh, uh, you know, being accessed, most likely an indicator that, uh, that the client side has been, uh, been infected and you need to go and remediate that problem. Yep. All right, good deal. Okay, so that's- so One last uh, thing I would sh- mention about sure. this
3: is that um, I find it interesting that they're releasing SSL certificates. Um, as a indicator, a form of a network observable, yeah. which is not very common. I know a- a- uh, Mandiant has done this with the APT1 report, but it's not a very common indicator. And this is probably the first mainstream one that I've really seen mm-hmm. you know, publicly that's going to be refreshed on a regular basis. And I think it's interesting in that, you know, I think we struggle and probably other people struggle in collecting indicator data and figure out how do I, now how do I ingest this into some kind of system Mm-hmm. that I'm going to you know, keep all of my indicators and observables so that I can push that out to my various devices that are gonna look for this and pro- help protect my enterprise and whatnot. Right. So just another hiccup of, oh, I wasn't expecting this. I've been looking for URLs and you know, bad email senders and you know, those types of things are pretty commonplace uh, in terms mm-hmm. of indicator data, but SSL certificates haven't. So now some people are gonna have to retool and think, oh, okay, i got to figure out how I'm gonna store this in my database things like Mm -hmm. that so just another thing yeah absolutely
1: this is something you can go to your uh, if you have an IDS vendor that you're working with to to talk with them about or or if you have a proxy on your interface to your enterprise you can talk to your uh, your your vendor that provide your proxy tools and uh, the onus is on them to really make this information useful in many cases Right, right all right OK, so let's, uh, let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And the first item here is scan probes on port 1521 TCP. Uh, that port is associated with, the, it's actually the default port for uh, Oracle's SQL database. And, um, you know, Oracle has a lot of products now. MySQL is actually a product owned by Oracle as well. Uh, this is not the MySQL database, it's the, uh, the sort of what we consider the traditional SQL database platform. But in any case, we're looking at 30 days of data here, and uh, what we're seeing is, uh, I guess, over the last week or so, a little bit more, uh, perhaps the last two weeks at a, at a lower level some scanning activity and uh, I guess my my guess here is that this is uh, anticipatory uh, toward an announcement from uh, Oracle they have their regular quarterly critical patch uh... advisories that come out and there's one scheduled for july fifteenth which, which happens to be today as we're recording this program now there was a pre-release that was announced and in there I did quote uh... one of these vulnerabilities may be remotely exploitable without authentication so that suggests perhaps that uh... there's somebody going out looking for perhaps uh... oracle sql databases that are accessible with the of perhaps trying to uh... A- exploit this vulnerability so uh... certainly if you're running an oracle database you're going to pay Pay attention to that. Make sure that it's not internet accessible. And in fact, uh, even in your enterprise, you might want to be looking for uh, any indications of uh, attempts to try to uh, access those uh, databases in an unauthorized manner.
2: We see 1521 get scanned just about the time that these patches come out every quarter. And uh, as you said, today is the day that Oracle scheduled to release those patches. I haven't seen them yet, um, but they're they're patching 113 vulnerabilities across all of their products, and the highest CVSS scores were the Oracle database and Java, and then MySQL was a little further down the list, so I I think you're right. I think this is probably in anticipation of that uh, vulnerability that they mentioned would be exploitable without authentication. Folks are trying to figure out which servers might be vulnerable before they can reverse engineer the Patch and figure out what the vulnerability was. All right,
1: and we shouldn't rule out the possibility that some of the scanning was actually, you know, with with good intent associated with it. But I will point out that most of this activity is actually from a very small number of sources in China. There, you know, it would be hard to rationalize that in scanning up a good portion of the internet um, from China and scanning across the United States would be an indication of of uh, good intent. But perhaps, uh, perhaps it is. Uh, Next item here, scan sources on port 443 TCP. We've been reporting on this for a while. I just wanted to give a little quick update. No degradation or reduction in activity associated with this. Uh, Most of these sources, the vast majority of them, are from Argentina, although they are not the primary source of probes. Uh, there are actually two sources uh, that are the primary sources of probes, uh, one being a, uh, basically a university that's doing a research activity and then an, uh, some activity that's uh, from China and they're working on sort of a different sort of uh, time cycle, not shown in this graph here. Uh, I sh- I'm showing 90 days of activity here just to sort of point out again, I think we showed this in a previous program, that uh, there are really two Episodes of this activity. We're in the second episode of activity that is a large number of sources from Argentina that are doing scanning activity on this port. Uh, next item here is scan probes on port 623 UDP. Uh, this is associated with ASF, that's uh, Alert Standard Format, uh, the Remote Management and Control Protocol. And uh, we've talked about this a little bit before. I'm showing 90 days of activity. And uh, it's a regular probing activity that is, uh, there's probing activity that's kind of recurring on a day-to-day basis. Uh, there are some exceptions to that, and again, we're looking at 90 days of data in this particular case so I could uh, basically show where this activity has started and how the, that profile has changed. Um, it appears that uh, the, the so primary source of this activity is uh, sort of a research or security research activity and uh, my guess here is that it's, uh, they're looking at it as a potential reflection or amplification protocol. Again, this is a UDP protocol, so the source address could be spoofed. Um, there may be circumstances where you can solicit a large response from uh, the, this application on port 623 and uh, that would make it a potential for uh, using it in amplification or, or reflection attack activities. Uh, so based on that I went and took a look to see if there were uh, any signs or evidence of reflection attacks using this port and uh, did not find any up to this point. So uh, hopefully we're safe on this matter I suspect there aren't that many applications that are exposed to the Internet that have this but um, you know certainly that's a possibility that there would be.
0: But uh, here's a good point, this is a remote management protocol.
1: That's a good point as well, yes and uh, so the uh, the motive may in fact be to uh, gain access to systems that would be remotely manageable, and perhaps to uh, right. yeah, the scanning could perform be, other activities, to
3: identify them. Right. It might not be necessarily for a
1: reflection, but yeah, very good point. Uh, next item here is uh, just sort of an update on uh, the zero access botnet. And uh, what we're looking at here is the P2P activity associated with zero access over the last two years. Uh, thanks to John for being able to basically go back and assemble this information over the last two years and, uh, and get it available. Now this botnet's uh, generally been associated with a click fraud activity. And it was disrupted twice, uh, first in uh, I think late July 2013 by Symantec. And then, uh, again, what we uh, refer to as a takedown, I'm gonna call it a disruption at this point, in December 2013, uh, but what we've seen recently over the last, I would say, last three weeks or so, were numerous indications from different sources, different, different circumstances and evidence of activity that suggest that this botnet is active again. We're not so sure that it's doing or at least not significant amount of recruiting into the botnet itself. As you can see that the activity recently over the last few months has been you know, kind of a downward slope, not a whole lot of new members, but we're see- certainly seeing cases uh, or indications that the botnet, perhaps what is remaining, is being used for, or at least prepared for use in uh, nefarious activities, uh, perhaps resuming that click fraud activity. Taking a look at the top 10 most probed ports, Uh, top of the list we have here is port 22. That hasn't changed since last week. It was uh, the top last week as well. Uh, Next item is port 445 TCP, which we typically see on this list. 53 UDP, uh, which has moved up a few slots, uh, actually seven slots from from last week. 3389 TCP, that's remote desktop protocol, followed by port 23 telnet. Uh, port 443 TCP, we talked about that a little bit already, port 80 TCP, 1433 TCP, and then uh, uh, followed by uh, 8 TCP, which actually is a ping request, and then uh, uh, not a very strong indicator of what's actually going on there, and then the uh, last on this list is port 8080 TCP. Uh, taking a little bit of a closer look, uh, since port 22 TCP was at the top of the list here, we talked about this last week as well, but uh, I thought I'd revisit it because it continues to, to, uh, to show sort of a, a climbing trend. Uh, looking at the last year of activity on Port 22, uh, since about November last year, uh, actually the, the trend line here starts around November 17th or so, Uh, And up to present day, it seems like we've seen a significant increase in the activity on this, Uh, more than a five-fold increase, perhaps uh, closer, depending on how you draw the line, uh, closer about a ten-fold increase in in general activity. And in fact, what we're seeing, it's probably a little bit difficult to see in the graphic, but uh, actually some spikes that are, uh, what I'll say, are new records in terms of probing activity on uh, port 22 uh over the span of the last 2 years so uh something significant to, to be uh, paying attention to if you have any ssh uh exposed on the internet you're going to want to pay attention to that uh make sure that you're not subject to brute force attacks and uh the subtlety here is that it, your brute force attack could be coming from many uh, different ip addresses it isn't necessarily just one and then gets locked out uh they may be using many different ip addresses to do that attack activity
3: and you might not even know the devices that you have that are uh, listening on port 22 for SSH. So there's a lot of these embedded devices, home routers, other types of NAS appliances, network test storage and whatnot that you might not even be aware are internet exposed with SSH. So if you're not, you should check.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Good point, Uh, plan for it. Try to get the firewall as close to the uh, outside edge as possible. And uh, even then identify your address space, scan it, try to identify uh, services that you didn't expect to be there.
3: And I left out a big one, which is your uh, DVRs. You know, your security camera DVRs, which happen to be a lot of the lion's share of these infected devices. People tend to open these up or, you know, set them up as like a DMZ machine so that people on the outside can get access to them. So maybe from your phone or whatever, you can go look at your web cameras that you Mm -hmm. have in your business or your home. And when you do that, sometimes you're inadvertently exposing the SSH port as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely true. Okay, next item here is top ten most sources probing, and uh, this is uh, not seeing a lot of movement since last week. Top of the list, port four forty three TCP. We talked about those uh, primarily sources out of Argentina, followed by port four forty five TCP. We're going to take a look at that in a moment here, uh, and then followed by port twenty three TCP, eighty eighty TCP, eighty TCP, and uh, the rest of these here are actually uh, actually two of them are associated with uh, gaming. Uh, uh, but John, you keep correcting me on this. Port 3128 uh, oh, that was associated I don't with. That gaming. That's uh, yeah. squid it was proxy. A squid proxy, yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. And then, uh, then followed by port 8081 TCP. So, uh, taking a look at, again, the last two years of uh, trending activity associated with scan sources on port 445 TCP, uh, this is uh, primarily associated with the Conficker infection, and uh, it is diminishing somewhat but not significantly, or not as significantly as we'd like to see. Um, And just to put it into relative terms here, uh, about two years ago, we were seeing on the order of about 27 million, uh, or excuse excuse me, 27,000 sources they were scanning on this port uh, from our perspective, and this is a specific perspective, and then relatively speaking, we currently see on the order of about 20,000 per hour. And so uh, again, diminishing, but not uh, as significant as you'd like it to be. Uh, not even uh, to this point where we've seen uh, a third of them go away at this point. So that's our show for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com and you can get notices of new episodes through uh, Twitter, our handle is at ThreatTrack and we certainly welcome your feedback there as well. The uh, ThreatTrack vi- video is available in two places on the at Tech Channel, it's att.com ThreatTrack as well as on the ATT Tech channel on YouTube. Just search for Threat Track, Threat Track and you'll find it there. Uh, there's an audio only version also available on iTunes. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jim online, John and Matt. And uh, I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe.
0: expressed on AT&T threat track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.